this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Tony stops to pour herself a cup of Station House coffee. Wretched, but welcome. Walking down the hallway to her cubicle, she makes one more stop. To the casual observer, it looks like she's dropping a block of yellow post-it notes on Officer Accardi's desk. Tony smiles at Emilio, nods as she set them down. Hey, thanks, Tony, he says fanning the little stack. Amelia sees that they're blank. Nothing is written on them, but the message is loud and clear. It's the prearranged signal that sets everything into motion. This is G.P. Gottlieb, host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today I'm talking with Laurie Buchanan, whose second novel in the Sean McPherson series was recently released. Iconoclast continues the story of a former cop who nearly died in the shooting that killed his partner. He's living in one of the cabins at his sister's Bellingham, Washington writer's retreat, helping maintain order and trying to save lives. Nobody realizes that a crime syndicate out of Seattle has reached Bellingham and already murdered a priest who might have inadvertently heard something, or that one of the retreat guests is an imposter there to commit another murder. Hi, Lori. Thanks for joining me today. Hi, Galit. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. So as someone with a PhD in holistic health with an emphasis on energy medicine, how did you come to write scary blood racing thrillers (laughs) about sociopathic killers, organized crime, and writing? That's a great question. And when you're writing nonfiction, you're working with facts. And as much as you can present them in a creative way, it's still facts. And while I enjoyed doing that, I wrote my first two books were nonfiction. When I shifted gears to start writing fiction, then you get to play God. You get to decide who lives, who dies, who's born, who gets removed from the equation. And depending on the kind of fiction that you write, you might even be making up a location. So my location is Pines and Quill, a writing retreat, which is a figment of my imagination in the very real historic Fairhaven district of Bellingham, Washington. So it's really fun to be able to write fiction. Mm. One of the characters in Iconoclast wears prosthetic legs, and it's 
wonderful that there's a completely accessible room at the, your pretend retreat. But I kept worrying that something bad would happen to him because he's such an easy mark. So I wanted to know if all thriller writers are, are just are trying to scare the bejeebies out of their readers. T tension is the name of the game. Tension is absolutely the name of the game. And if you can um, like use like an Alfred Hitchcockian premise, which is to let the readers know right up front who the bad guy or gal is. The suspense thriller is different than a mystery. A mystery, the readers don't find out who done it or why done it until the very end, usually the last couple turns of the page in the entire book. Suspense thriller, the readers know who done it or why done it pretty much in the first chapter, but the characters in the book don't. So that's where the tension comes in, the reader sitting there going, oh my gosh, don't pull back the shower curtain. Don't go in the forest. Don't turn the key in the ignition, whatever it might be, because they know. And it creates way more tension than you, than you can imagine, because each of us comes to life. We have our own baggage and everything we read or see or do is filtered through that. So some people have worse experiences and some people have better depending on their own real life experience. So that's a fun thing to be able to do is to create tension. Mm -hmm. I agree. The Pacific Northwest, specifically Bellingham, Washington, is probably the most important character in the book. Can you talk a bit about your love for that region? I love, first of all, I live in the Pacific Northwest, not in Bellingham, not even in the state of Washington. And the, the storyline, the series of books was originally going to be on the Columbia River, which I know extraordinarily well. But I was speaking at um, Right on the Sound, which is in Edmonds, Washington. And after the three-day three writing conference, my husband and I went up to Bellingham, which I had not been there before. And the minute, and I do mean moment, we crossed that sign that said, welcome to Bellingham, I knew I knew that the location was going to change, and I did. I had to change it, and I changed it for a very good reason. There's a, a tremendously bad, bad guy, a bad guy that you just love to hate, Giorgio the Bull Gambino, and I was going to have him trafficking his humans and his guns and his drugs out the Columbia River into the Pacific Ocean. But when you think about Bellingham, Washington, there's Bellingham Bay, and then you've got Puget Sound, you've got the San Juan Islands, and then you've got the, the, the shipping ways, the shipping like freeways, and then you've got the Pacific Ocean, much better for doing that. So I, I switched locations, and Bellingham is a phenomenal place to visit. If, if any of the people who are listening have been there, they know, they're shaking their heads going, oh yeah, it's phenomenal. I'm shaking my head. I <laughs> loved being there. It was gorgeous. Yeah. You know, Lori, I read both the Sean McPherson books and wonder if you based him, Mick, on someone you greatly admire. Well, that's a great question. It is based on somebody I saw at a glance. I was at um, 
a, a, a women's retreat. It's called Hedgebrook on Whidbey Island, which is located off the coast of Seattle, Washington. And there are cabins there. And I was in a cabin, kind of like the Pines and Quill riding retreat. I was in Willow. And I came outside to take a break. And in the distance, I saw this very handsome man pushing a wheelbarrow. And that wheelbarrow had landscaping type things in it. And and the man was limping. And it wasn't just a small limp. It was 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 pretty profound. And I took that information in the back of my mind. I was there writing one of my nonfiction books. And when the end of the non, second nonfiction book came and, you know, I thought, what, what more can I add? I've said everything I wanted to say in that, in that realm. Then, then that guy popped up in my mind and I thought, oh my gosh, I wonder if he was limping because maybe he was the right age for Afghanistan. I wonder if he might've been a police officer. I wonder what happened. And hence that is where Sean Mick McPherson was born right there. That seed, it was just this, this less than a minute glance. And, and that's how Sean McPherson came about. Mm. So you have written two nonfiction prize winning books and now two fiction books in the Sean McPherson series. So I'm wondering, do you, have you come um, to a method of one sort that you stick to, or do you exper- are you still experimenting with different ways of writing each book? Um, I'm not experimenting. I've landed on something that is winning, and you know that saying, don't fix what's not broke. And so you are aware of two of the books, because they're out now. But the, the my publisher has book three, which is Impervious. The beta readers have book four, which is Iniquity. And I'm currently writing Illusionist, which is book five. And I'm under a seven book contract. And so it's working extraordinarily well. Um, we the, the book that just came out in, is already in its third printing. It's selling a lot of copies. So we know that it's working. So I don't want to change anything. My, my writing schedule and my writing, what I do seems to work. So the question is, are you a pantser or a plotter? Let me try to explain that. Okay. Do you want me to explain it? Mm-hmm. Okay. So for anybody listening, somebody who is a plotter, they might have pie charts. They might have graphs. They might have yellow stickies and notebooks and three ring binders that, that they've plotted everything out. And pantsters right by the seat of their pants. That's where that's where that came from. And I am a pantster. I I have a big <laughs> I know nobody thinks it. No, they think about Lori Buchanan and I'm a I I dot my I's and cross my T's, but I am not a planner. Now I obviously because I'm writing a series, I have a big picture view. I know what's what's gonna happen and I know what needs to happen, but I don't have pie charts and graphs and all of that kind of thing. I literally go to bed at night and I have my phone next to me. If I think of something, I sit up and I say it into my phone so I don't miss it or I write it. Usually I say it and I, 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 I sit, I get up at four o'clock in the morning and I do my, my, I have, I drink something. It's a protein shake called kachava and I do my yoga and my meditation. Then I put on a headlamp because it's still dark here and I go on a two mile walk, come back and I write two hours, go for another two mile walk, come back and write for two hours and take a final two hour walk of the day, getting in six 
six hours. During those walks and my sleep at night is where the story comes to me. It, it doesn't have to compete with, you know, with anything. It doesn't have to compete with social media. I haven't seen television. We have not owned a television since 1980. Um, that was one of the things I told my husband. For me, that's a deal breaker. I don't want to have a television. We're readers. So I, I don't, my mind doesn't compete with this other stuff. I, I read and I write. And I, of course, I take photographs. Do you have time to eat dinner? <laughs> <laughs> yes. And thankfully, the the, the 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 gourmet chef in the books, Neil McPherson, Neil McCullough, is based on a real live person who cooks. That's my husband, Len. He is a phenomenal cook and he is uh, he knows his wines inside out. So anybody who reads the Sean McPherson novels reads these these menus that are tried and true. We, we really do eat, eat them. Um, in the in the books you're reading about um, non-vegetarian meals in real life, we are vegetarians. We used to be vegan, but we do now have butter and eggs um, and cheese, but we, we don't eat meat. But in, in the books, um, Neil does prepare uh, meals, menus that include meat. So I would like to request a vegetarian guest at the retreat so that he has to offer an option. And actually, okay. you, you will get that in the book that I'm working on right now, because about 17 people, you're, you make number 18, have said that. <laughs> okay. So Pamela, one of the characters in Iconoclast, has come to the retreat to work on a manuscript about the pandemic of racism. Can you say more about peaceful turbulence, the nonviolent pursuit of of equality. And that is Pam's book. With each guest, there's four, I have to come up with book titles. And you know, because you're a writer too, you know in real life coming up with a viable um, book title is, is not a cakewalk. And so when I was thinking in terms of having a civil rights attorney, I, and I didn't want to have anything that's already out there because that wouldn't be right. It needs to come from my head. I was thinking about about what does that mean and you know what are civil rights what is broken and this is what she's writing about and she she and I won't I won't give away any uh, uh, I won't steal my own thunder but Pam the one who was coming to Pines and Quill was just this amazing amazing woman and um, and then you because you've read it know know some different things Okay, don't tell any, don't say anymore. <laughs> okay. <laughs> How does writing sociopathic or psychopathic characters affect your feeling about humanity? Lori, is there a chance for survival or are we all doomed? <laughs> we are not all doomed. Not at all. And the writing of sociopath and psychopath, which are two very different things. And in this case, I have psychopaths in the books, but they are different things. Sometimes people use them interchangeably. C uh, came from a, a 10 year um, career of being a holistic health practitioner. And during that time, I got to go to the, uh, it, it, this was down in San Diego, it was also in Chicago. And I got to go to the jails. I got to go to prisons. I got to work with some people who were difficult for uh, traditional 
type of physicians to work with. And I'm not a physician at all, other than when you think about emotions, physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually, not the physical aspect. And so I got a, a close up up close and personal view of some of this. So it's then when you do your studying and your research and your research, you learn even more and you, you study some of the very famous psychopaths and sociopaths, but we, we, there are more good people than there are, are non good people. Um, When you stop to think, I think it was Mr. Rogers. He said, he's well known for saying, look for the helpers look for the helpers. There are so many good people out there. Of course, the news, which I don't get to see other than when I'm on social media, they, they, they sell more news by telling you the bad things are, that are going on, unfortunately. But there's just as many, if not more, good things going on. So no, we don't have to hide our heads in the sand. We don't have to go out and buy bulletproof vests or anything like that. We're, we're all gonna, it's all going to work out well in the end. Phew. Okay, I feel much better. <laughs> this, uh, everything takes place, most of the action takes place at this lovely writer's retreat that we've been discussing outside of, or net, very close to, five minutes away from Bellingham. And it, it just sounds spectacular. I've never been to a writing retreat. Um, do they really exist? Did you did you do any research? And where should where can I sign up? Yes, yeah, so I, they really do exist. Uh, UW Madison used to have a phenomenal one that I presented at many times, not in cabins and that type of thing, but the Writers Institute there. Um, I mentioned earlier about Write on the Sound, which is in Edmonds, Washington, and it's phenomenal. They're not in cabins. Hedgebrook, however, which is on Whidbey Island, is only for women authors. And uh, I, I'm sure there's something somewhere for men. I'm just not familiar with it because I'm not a man. But I have been to Hedgebrook, and it really is in cabins. And they really do, the authors really do meet at the end of the day over a meal. And they talk about what is working, what were your challenges, what road bumps did you hit. And they are wonderful. They're, they're not inexpensive, but they're well worth every single penny. Every chapter in Iconoclast starts with a quote, really lovely quotes. And my favorite in the entire book was the famous Mark Twain saying, the difference between the right word and the almost right word is the difference between lightning and a lightning bug. Can you say more? Yes. So it, we, we are all familiar with the term epitaph, which goes on a headstone in a cemetery, an opening a quote in front of a chapter is called an epigraph, G-R-A-P-H, an epigraph. So I open each chapter with an epigraph. Usually it has something to do with about writing. Is it a writing tip from a famous author? Or is it about something? Because remember, we're at Pines and Quill, a writing retreat. So I'm trying to um, get some fun information into the hands of whether it's a reader or a writer who's reading it. And I get from, if you go out and look at any of the reviews, people that are both authors and readers only say, oh my gosh, that's part of my favorite part of the book. It's so neat to see these people. Some of the names they're familiar with, others, if they're not, I bet people are Googling them. So it's really fun for me to to open or launch each chapter with an epigraph. Took a little bit of research, though. Yes. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yes. 
Uh, are you going to keep that up in the other books? Oh, yes, absolutely. And one thing I might say, um, when I was naming some of the books earlier, in case the the listeners might might have heard this, each of the titles starts with the letter I, and each word is four syllables long. So we have indelible, iconoclast, impervious, iniquity, and right now I'm writing illusionist. And I don't know why. I wanted something like Sue Grafton. She did the, you know, the alphabet murders. A is for this, B is for that, and so forth. And she died just before Z. She made it all the way through um, Y, um, but she didn't live to, to do Z. But I wanted, that was her signature. And I wanted some kind of a signature as well, something completely different. And I really liked the first word, indelible. It's fun to say. It's a, it's a neat, it, it's almost tastes good. It's a neat word. So I I looked up all these four syllable I words and thought, what can I write around these words um, and 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 not be hokey? And sure enough, I can. Intelligence. There you go. <laughs> I was ask, my question about that was going to be why why the letter I? But I think you answered it. You found yeah. the one word. Yes. But then you could start a whole new series. In some other letter. <laughs> there, you go. there you go. <laughs> oh, we spend a little time in the iconoclast's mind. At one point, she thinks to herself that the most dangerous of all creatures is a man with nothing and everything to lose. Mm-hmm. Can you say more? Yes. And that is when you've got somebody who has nothing to lose they're the best man or woman for the job because they're, they're not afraid. I will owe my children this. Oh, my husband, that, Oh, my wife, that, Oh, my, whatever. Oh, my job. Oh, my career. Oh, my, whatever. If you have nothing to lose, you're going to, there's no fear. I mean, you're fearless. You're, you are going to do things hopefully that are amazing. Um, but it's, if you've got the, depending on what color hat you have on, are you the good guy hat or the bad guy hat? Um, and if you are, you know, in, in wartime situations, you read stories about World War II and these men who, who ran up the hill, who they didn't have wives or, you know, they were, they had nothing to lose and they would take out a nest of the of the bad guys to save you know troops hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people giving their own lives because they had nothing to lose so they did amazing things so then you take the flip side of that and there's there's people who have nothing to lose and do some horrific things, hellacious type things. And those are the kind of people that Giorgio the Bull Gambino, he employs those kind of foot soldiers or minions or thugs or goons, whatever you want to call them. That's who he's looking for, because then he can do anything with them. Yeah. Ah, You've already told us a bit about what you're working on next, um, but about what's coming out next. But what are you actually writing when you sit down and write? for the two hours in between your walking. Wow, your schedule, I'm exhausted. (laughs) (laughs) What are you working specifically so right now I'm writing about illusionist and there's a pretty big red herring in this particular book. There is a magician, a world famous, world renowned magician who has come there and her books sell like hotcakes and they always involve magic. And because of, and she loves to make things disappear and appear. And because of her skill set, the things that are going wrong 
people are thinking it's her. Now I'll tell you, it's not her, but I won't tell you who it is. So I've had to do my study, uh, my studies. And when I was growing up, I either wanted to be a mad scientist. I wanted to be a magician. I wanted to be some, uh, I wanted to be an international spy and I get to be an international spy with some of my writing. Um, I'm getting to be a magician in this book. And I had a wonderful magic kit when I was a kid and I've had, uh, this is way past that. So I'm working on, and there's a sting, there's, there's a sting operation and I'm working on that specifically right now. Ah, it sounds wonderful. Thank you again for talking to me today, Lori Buchanan. It's been a pleasure. Galit, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciated it. This is fun. Thanks. And thank you for joining me in talking about another juicy read. Again, this is G.P. Gottlieb, author of the Whipped and Sipped Mystery series and host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I've been talking to Lori Buchanan about her suspense thriller, Iconoclast. So hope you find yourself a comfy place to sit with a good book. Happy reading, everyone. <laughs>